Today's first reading is from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 15. At the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release. And this is the manner of the release. Every creditor shall release what they have lent to their neighbor. They shall not exact it of their neighbor, their brother or sister, because the Lord's release has been proclaimed. Of a foreigner you may exact it, but whatever is yours, whatever of yours is with your brother or sister, your hand shall release. But there will be no poor among you, for the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. If only you will strictly obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all this commandment that I command you today. If among you, one of your brothers or sisters should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against them, but you shall open your hand to them and lend them sufficient for their need, whatever it may be. Take care, lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart, and you say, The seventh year, the year of release is near, and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother or sister, and you give them nothing. And they cry to the Lord against you, and you be guilty of sin. You shall give give to them freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to them, because... For this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother or sister, to the needy and to the poor in your land. The word of the Lord. The second reading is from Acts 4:29 to 37. The church elders praying. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, The place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to them was their own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were given the testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as they had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the disciples' feet. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
As we begin, let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word through which you speak and reveal yourself to us. I'd pray then, in light of that truth, that I as preacher would get out of the way. There'd be far less of me and far more of you. That your people gathered this day would be edified and your son, Jesus, glorified. For we ask it in his name. Amen. This year, we've been prayerfully asking the Spirit to lead and to guide us that we might more and more press into the way of Jesus, attending to his kingdom needs, matters of poverty, injustice, inequality, extending generous and radical hospitality to all whom God would bring our way. And our hope is that by the end of this year, we would discern how the Spirit has been calling and equipping our community to serve. And our current sermon series is part of that discerning work as we behold in Scripture how God shapes our hearts toward justice. We look last at an episode from the life of Abraham where in a meal, an extension of Bedouin hospitality, Abram encounters the tender mercy and the fiery justice of God. And in that encounter with seemingly irreconcilable attributes, Abram is shaped to pray boldly and lovingly for the people of Sodom. And in that interaction between Abraham and God, we discovered a key truth, that we are shaped toward mercy and justice through an encounter with the living God. It's a truth that is echoed in the writings of Anglican scholar N.T. Wright when he wrote, one of the primary laws of human life is that we become what we worship. We become what we ascribe ultimate worth to. He gave some examples. Worship money, and you'll increasingly define yourself in terms of it and treat other people as creditors, debtors, partners, or customers rather than as human beings. Worship sex, and you'll increasingly define yourself in terms of it, your preferences, practices, past histories, and increasingly treat other people as actual or potential sexual objects. Worship power, and you'll increasingly define yourself in terms of it and define other people as either collaborators, competitors, or pawns. The primary laws of human life is that we become what we worship. We become what we ascribe ultimate worth to. And so as we worship a God of justice and mercy and grace and love, we become a people of grace and mercy and justice and love. And we saw that truth beautifully expressed in that episode from the life of Abram, but we also see that beautifully expressed in that community from the book of Acts, that first community of followers of Jesus. And so it begs the question, what actually happened 
And how can that more and more be our reality? Our first reading from the book of Deuteronomy helps us to set some of the larger context. For the people of Israel were shaped by their worship to be a people of mercy and justice. And one of the Old Testament scholars reflected that by biblical justice, what the people of Israel meant were having the conditions present where everyone was able to flourish. And our reading from Deuteronomy gives one of those conditions that was meant to undergird the flourishing of all. And essentially, every seven years, all debts were canceled. Every seven years, anyone who was caught in a cycle of poverty was given a fresh start. This is how it would work. Let's say you were hard at work on the family farm, and then illness hit, or famine descended. Or you're working at your family business, and demand for what you're selling just dries up, or you've been taken advantage of economically. And with no social safety net, this would be utterly devastating. Would set up a context for crushing generational poverty. So what do you do? Well, in this culture, there's no bankruptcy protection laws. There's no bank you could go to for a loan to float you until you figured things out. But you could go to a wealthy landowner and offer yours and your family's services in exchange for room and board, your basic needs met, and that landowner to pay off your debts, at which you would then work off by your service. Now, you might think that this is a system that would allow the rich to get richer and the poor to get poorer and to establish very clear class distinctions, but not so. Every seven years, those who were in servitude would be released, their debts completely forgiven. And not only that, the landowner was required to furnish that person with animals from their flock, seeds from their grain houses, wine so that they could have safe hydration and that would enable them to set themselves up well for the future. And the whole goal of that system was that there would be no poor in the nation of Israel. Poverty alleviated. And so systems and structures like this were put in place to support that I think that first invites all of us who worship a God of mercy and justice to be deeply concerned about the laws, the systems, the structures of our nation, our city. Do they support the flourishing of all? Deuteronomy is telling us that to worship a God of mercy and justice is to be deeply concerned about such things. It's not an optional add-on to our faith that is right at the heart of our worship. But the systems, the laws, the structures of a society are effective only to the degree that the hearts of those who administer them, who have a hand in their application, are similarly committed to the flourishing of all, right? And the second part of our reading from Deuteronomy acknowledges that reality. 
Here we have pictured an individual or a family that comes to a wealthy landowner to exchange service for debt payment. But in this case, the year of release is right around the corner, and now it doesn't make any economic sense. Oh, if you were going to serve me for six years, okay, but six months? That's going to be some greatly overpaid months of labor, and then I'm required to set you up with animals and wine and seed. I'm going to greatly disadvantage myself for your sake. And the temptation would be to shut the door, to close off the heart. And so here in Deuteronomy, you've got this tension. A system that was put in place meant to undergird the flourishing of all, but also the reality that because of the brokenness of the human heart, there would always be poverty in their midst. And then in Acts 4, we have this community, a community of followers of Jesus, by this time numbering in the tens of thousands, marked by the distinctive feature that there is no poor in their midst. What happened? This community is the fulfillment of the hope of Deuteronomy 15. What happened? Well, in the chapters leading up to this moment, Peter and John have been in the temple preaching about Jesus. And on one of their visits to the temple, they encounter a man in his 40s who's been lame from birth, who's asking for money. They say, we we don't have money to give you, but what we have, we will give in the name of Jesus, rise and walk. And he does. There's quite a stir, quite a commotion, as you can well imagine, and a lot of people are gathering around, and it provides an opportunity for Peter and John to begin to speak more of Jesus. And 5,000 come to faith. The Sadducees, the religious leaders, they're not all that thrilled by this, not only the content of their message, but the growing following, and they arrest them. But they're concerned by what the populace might do in response, and so they simply threaten them, shut up about this Jesus or else, and then they let them go. And Peter and John return to their friends. They share what's happened, and they begin to pray. And our reading from Acts captures the final sentence of of that prayer. And they don't pray for God to deal with those who are threatening them. Instead, they pray for boldness. They pray against the fear that is undoubtedly bubbling up in them. They pray for the signs and wonders to continue. That as the sign of Jesus' kingdom, as the signs of new creation had broken in to the life of the lame man, that those signs would continue. New creation would continue to break out. And they finish praying. And something happens. Something happens. And the results of it are absolutely stunning. First, they continue to speak with boldness. Meaning the fear that was stirred up in them by the threats no longer held them. And I believe this is key to understanding the incredible generosity that marked this community. You see, what I think often keeps us from being generous with our resources is fear. It is in my case. 
My savings, my investments, I believe, are keeping me safe in the face of an unknown future. And how am I going to face that unknown future with strength unless I have them? And whatever happened here undercut that fear. It loosened the hold that money had on their heart. As verse 32 highlights, they didn't consider anything that they owned to be their own. Instead, everything was held in common. And some have said, well, this is the alleviation of private ownership, the first fully communal society, but no. The language of Acts continues to speak of these things as belonging to their owners, but their heart attitude toward those things radically shifted. They saw what they had as gifts from God, that they were called to steward, to manage for the sake of others. And so whenever a need arose, they would sell what they had, lay it at the apostles' feet, who would then distribute. Heart and system of justice were aligned, and there was no poverty in their midst. Whatever happened here shaped their hearts to be active and intentional in their giving. See, I think most of us are likely very passive and spontaneous when we think of giving. We'll give, but often in the face of an ask, motivated by guilt, you have so much, what about these starving children? But whatever happened here made them active and intentional in their giving. They were looking for ways to give. There's a biblical practice that is meant to shape this in our hearts. There's a practice called the first fruits, giving the first 10% away. And doing that prompted active and intentional questions. I have this amount, this 10%. Where is it most needed? Where can I most invest in the work of ministry? But this was also a practice that built deep trust. Israel was an agrarian society. So if you gave away the first 10%, the remaining 90 was likely still in the field, still in the barn, susceptible to weather and vermin. Giving it away, those first fruits, actively and intentionally was founded on deep trust, but also built deep trust. And whatever happened made that discipline, that practice, a joy-filled reality. Whatever happened here also impacted relationships. In verse 32, we hear that they were one in heart and in mind. And the commentators will point out that this is the distinctive Greek philosophical language of friendship. It's the language that Aristotle used when he argued that friendship could only exist amongst those of the same social class. But here we see these followers of Jesus that we know was already racially diverse, now also socioeconomically diverse, in deep friendship. Whatever happened brought deep friendship about across all cultural barriers. So what happened here? Were they inspired by the Christian witness of the community down the street? No. 
Did Peter and John preach a corker of a sermon and convict them of the way of Jesus? No. So what happened here? They prayed. They were shaken. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. That's what happened here. But weren't they already filled with the Spirit? I mean, that that was Pentecost, right? Wind, fire, filled with the Spirit. Yes, they were filled then, but also filled now. Paul invites us in his reading, in his writings, to yearn for, to be eager for the ongoing filling of the Spirit that we might be equipped and empowered to do what we're called to do. But how? How? Well, Jesus in John 16 will say that the Spirit's work is to glorify Him. And the word glory means weight, importance, significance meaning that the Spirit changes and transforms us by pressing the truth of Jesus, the truth of the gospel, down into our hearts such that Jesus, his love, his grace, his work becomes the most weighty, the most important, the most significant reality in our lives. The Spirit has never come to me, look at me, listen to me, but rather go to him, go to Jesus, listen to him. The Spirit glorifies Jesus makes Jesus real to us, connects head and heart, assures us of truths that we may now only know by intellectual assent. Now perhaps this is a silly example, but I think it will help us to understand this work of the Spirit. My eldest son Joshua and I share a love for chicken wings. And for many years, when we would be enjoying some together, I would say, you have got to try the chicken wings from the Anchor Bar in Buffalo. It's the birthplace of the Buffalo chicken wing. And I would describe to him the taste and the texture and the crunchiness and the, the spicy finish of the sauce. And he trusted me. He believed me. But not until we shared that first order of Buffalo chicken wings from the Anchor Bar in Buffalo did the truth become real to him. That is meant to be an example of the work of the Spirit in us, making Jesus real to us, that we may taste the truth of who he is and what he's done, experience it, know it to the very core of our being. The Puritan preacher Thomas Goodwin had a great illustration of this. He said, we're told that God loves us, that we're his beloved children. But do we know it? Do we experience it? Do we feel it to the very core of our being? That picture, he said, a father walking with his daughter, hand in hand down the road. Father, daughter, daughter, father. Little girl knows that this man is her father and that her father loves her. Then all of a sudden, the father stops and he stoops down and he gathers his daughter in his arms big bear hug, and he swings her around, and he kisses her on the cheek and whispers in her ear, I love you, I delight in you. That moment has not changed her status. She's no more a daughter in that moment than she was before. But oh, the difference in the experience of that status. And for Goodwin, that was a picture of the Spirit's work in us, making the truth of his love 
real. And that is exactly what happened in the aftermath of that prayer. The Spirit descended and truth became real. Oh yes, they already believed that Jesus was coming again to make everything new. But now the Spirit pressed that truth home, releasing their resources, knowing it would not be their wealth that kept them safe in the face of an unknown future. It would be Jesus who was bringing a future that was far beyond what they could possibly imagine. Oh yes, they knew that a person's value was not wrapped up in their race nor their wealth, but in who they were in Christ. But they remained in their homogenous circles. But the Spirit came and pressed that truth home. And deep friendships flourished across cultural barriers. Oh yes, they knew that God desired mercy and justice, conditions present where all would flourish. But they were poor in their midst. And the Spirit came and pressed the truth home, and heart and structure were aligned. They became active and intentional with their giving, and there was no poor in their midst. This is not just the experience of the early church. I could share story after story of how the Spirit has brought truth home to Christian community throughout Christian history where we see this reality come to fruition. Perhaps one story bears telling. Not all that long ago, theologian Miroslav Volf visited the U.S. He spent some time with a pastor by the name of Mark Gornick. And Mark was taking uh, Volf around the neighborhood where he served a church in the Sandtown district of Baltimore. And it grievously reminded Wolf of his homeland, the war-torn nation of former Yugoslavia. But the destroyer of this U.S. neighborhood wasn't war, but racial tension, crime, and economic ruin. Shaped by the gospel, Gornick had moved into the neighborhood, planted a church that served and loved the residents. They built homes for 200 They hosted a job center that found employment for a thousand. They built a school and a health center. And as they walked along those streets, Gornick said something that almost in passing startled Wolf. He suggested that the doctrine of justification by grace, the spirit pressing down the reality that we are saved by the free love, grace, and forgiveness of Jesus, had untapped resources for healing societal ills. And Wolf was shocked by that because many in the church had jettisoned that conviction, seeing it as useless and unhelpful for healing the social implications of poverty, violence, and hopelessness. And it left Wolf with a lingering question. How could these streets find life from such a truth? And this is what he wrote. Imagine you have no job, no money. You live cut off from the rest of society in a world ruled by poverty and violence. Your skin's the wrong color. You have no hope that any of this will change. And around you, 
is a society governed by the iron law of achievement. Its gilded goods are flaunted before your eyes on television. And in a thousand ways, society tells you every day that you're worthless because you've not achieved. You're a failure. And you know that you will continue to be a failure because there's no way to achieve tomorrow what you have not managed to achieve today. Your dignity is shattered. Your soul enveloped in the darkness of despair. But the gospel tells you that you're not defined by outside forces. It tells you that you count, even more, that you're loved unconditionally and infinitely, irrespective of anything you've achieved or failed to achieve. Imagine now this gospel not simply proclaimed, but embodied in a community. Justified by sheer grace, it seeks to justify by grace those declared unjust by a society's unplacable law of achievement. Imagine, furthermore, this community determined to infuse the wider culture, along with its political and economic institutions, with the message that it seeks to embody and proclaim. This, he said, was what the church in Sandtown was all about. This is what the church in Acts was all about. This is what the Spirit is desiring to make the church all about. As the Spirit presses the truth of Jesus down into our hearts, that Jesus would be the most weighty, the most important, the most significant reality in our lives, and that we would become what we worship, that we would reflect the one to whom we ascribe ultimate worth. The Spirit is desirous above all else to make Jesus real to you, to you, to you, to you, to all of us. And so all that is left for us in light of this text is to do what the early church did, to pray to rely upon the reality that it will only be the Spirit that brings this reality about in us and through us. And so with that truth and with that yearning, let's now pray. Come, Holy Spirit, come. Have your way with us. Open our eyes to see, our ears to hear our hearts to receive. Make Jesus real. That his truth, his love, his grace, his justice and mercy might become the most significant reality in our lives. By your spirit, push away anything else that clamors for our heart's attention. Come, Holy Spirit, come. Glorify Jesus that we might reflect the one we ascribe ultimate worth to. For we pray this in his name. Amen. You've just listened to a podcast from Little Trinity Church in Toronto. Please check out our website at www.littletrinity.org to find out more about our ministries and services.